Hi, book lovers. This is Ellen Hildebrand, best-selling author of 30 books, including The Hotel Nantucket and The Perfect Couple. And this is Tim Ehrenberg, creator of Tim Talks Books. And you're listening to Books, Beach and Beyond, presented by N Magazine. We'll be diving into the wonderful world of books and featuring special guests from best-selling and award-winning writers, publishing industry insiders, agents and editors, book influencers, and more. There's nothing Ellen and I love more than talking about books. And our favorite question to ask each other is, what are you reading? But we'll go even further here on the show, exploring the craft of writing, the process of book publishing, and that wonderful connection a reader has with a favorite book. But before we head into our episode, we want to take this opportunity to thank our incredible premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms. Without their generous support, we wouldn't be able to bring you these fascinating conversations with some of the most dynamic leaders from the book world. So thank you. And now on to the show. Hello, Ellen. Hi, Tim. Here we are back in the studio. Here we are. I'm so excited for today's episode. Today, I want to talk reviews. Do you love reviewing books? I have never reviewed a book. I've never been asked. Well, informally. Is that true? I mean, I this is the thing. On my Instagram, I post about the books that I organically love. Mm-hmm which is different from blurbs. We talked about blurbs in a past episode. Yes. Blurbs are one thing. When I organically post about something on my Instagram, that means I really love it. The The better question really is, how do I feel about being reviewed? Mm, that is a better question. Such as, I'll tell you, my very first review ever was my first novel, The Beach Club, was reviewed by People Magazine, and it got four stars and was Beach Book of the Week. And so that led me into this false confidence that all of my reviews were going to be good. <laughs> Then I wasn't reviewed. I don't think my second or third books were even reviewed at all. And then my fourth book, The Blue Bistro, which, as you know, is my baby, Mm -hmm. was crucified in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is my hometown. Oh, yeah. They called it 200 pages of chicken salad. (laughs) I'm like, this is just awful. I loved that chicken salad. And so did everyone else. But back to reviews, perhaps the most famous place for book reviews is the New York Times book review. On October 10th, 1896, wow, the New York Times announced, we begin today the publication of Supplement, which contains reviews of the new books. What has followed over the subsequent 127 years is an evolution of literary journalism, reviews, news, essays, and interviews that have shaped the course of American letters. Our guest today is Gilbert Cruz, the editor of the New York Times Book Review. Gilbert, who was born and raised in the Bronx, started his journalism career at the Tuscaloosa News in Alabama before moving to Entertainment Weekly as an editorial assistant in the books department, so he must have given out the grades, and later to Time and New York Magazine. He came to the Times in 2015 as a television editor and was soon asked to help launch Watching. Watching expanded the scope of service journalism at the Times. A promotion to culture editor soon followed. But books are Gilbert's first love, as anyone who has listened to him talk about them on NYT Audio, read his brilliant exegesis of the essential Stephen King, or follows him on Twitter may have suspected. He is a lifelong passionate reader, and we are excited. I am personally absolutely thrilled to have him with us today. Hello, Gilbert! 
Hello, Hello, Gilbert. Hi. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my gosh. We have this thing on Nantucket. We've had it for years called the Nantucket Project, which is basically like, you know, like a mini TED Talks thing. And I only ever went the very first year. And they had all these like science and tech people. And they asked for suggestions. This was years ago. I'm trying. This must have been 2011. They asked for suggestions in the suggestion box. And I wrote, get the editor of the New York Times book review. That was really the only person that I ever wanted to talk to. And I have that chance today and I'm so excited. Ellen kind of read some bio facts in there that she just read, but I want to know your journey in your own words. But I want you to start with maybe the book that really made you fall in love and enter a world of books. Good question. I should have a pet answer for this at this point. (laughs) I think the first... The the first giant book I remember reading and and you know it's alluded to in that very very formal bio that you just read was I, it was probably a Stephen King book to be honest it was probably I was ten or eleven and I read it which is one of his longest books I think maybe the ABC miniseries had just come out and I'd been a big reader you know from five to ten or so a lot of creepy books books about like ghosts and 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 spooks and stuff like that. And so I gravitated towards a very big book in that way. And I, I just became obsessed with it. I ended up reading as much of him as possible. And then I ended up reading as much as I could of everything that's ever been published. Now, you know what? There are a lot of books. And I'm realizing, as I'm almost a year into this job, that I actually haven't read that much. There's just, there's so many. I get to high school, you know, they give you all the things that you're supposed to read. I light upon The Great Gatsby, which is like the most cliche book ever, but it's one that I've possibly read more than any other book in my life, partially because it's so short, but partially because it's also beautiful. It's also, it's set in New York where I'm from. It's about wealthy people. And I grew up sort of lower middle class in, you know, a New York City borough. And there's always been a part of me that is like, well, that would be nice. The 20s are cool. You know, drinking and dancing to Charleston. There was a lot to that book that I really became obsessed with. And then as I got older, I just expanded my horizons greatly. I continued to read in genre, which is one of my first loves, but I started to read classics. I started to read giant biographies. I started to read all sorts of stuff. But now I've arrived at a point where it is my job to read everything. It's it's a great job. It's a great responsibility. There's not enough time of the day. Ellen and Tim, there's just not enough time in the day. So I have a question. So you grew up in the Bronx. Did you go to what, like a magnet school or did you go to like the local Bronx high school? Until I was a high school student, I went to public schools and I was in the, you know, I was in one of those programs, I think that no longer exists in the New York City public school system, the gifted and talented program. And so there'd be one floor in a really not great school. Yeah. Those a bunch of like nerdy kids, you know, and I went to... Public school 46, PS 46, PS, PS 246, which was across from Poe Park, which is where Edgar Allan Poe's cottage is, where he wrote The Bells and Annabelle Lee and a bunch of other stuff. That's wow. back when the Bronx was really rural and it wasn't like it is today. And then I went to Catholic school for okay, high school, for high all school. boys school. That was terrible. I don't know why I did that. Yeah, it sounds bad. It was uh, a bad call. <laughs> I actually taught, I taught it. IS 227 in the in Queens at the Louis Armstrong. Oh, really? Yeah, middle school. Yeah. Just one. I only lasted one year. Shocking. But I mean, I was 20, 22 or 23 years old. I mean, it really imprinted on me. So I know a lot about the New York City public school system. What a sliding doors moment. 
That could have been your life. I could have been my life. <laughs> <laughs> Much different life. Did you go to college? I did. I went to Georgetown in D.C. I just went there for my my reunion, which I hadn't I hadn't been to one of those in quite a while. I initially wanted to go work in government and politics, which is why I went to school in D.C. And shortly after I started, I realized, no, this is not this is not going to work. I can't afford an internship on the Hill. Right. Where you have to work for free. It's like, that's not going to work. And then a bunch of people who are going into that line of business in my class were just not the people I, wa- I wanted to professionally be around, I realized. So I, I moved towards the campus alt-weekly, the Georgetown Voice, where I started to write movie reviews. And then that led to journalism, which is what I've been doing for, you know, a couple decades now. And so you start out at the Tuscaloosa paper. So I have actually done three events in Alabama in the last year. Can you believe mm. it? Is that true? Yes, I, I was in true. Sheffield. I was in Sheffield, Alabama, which is down by Muscle Shoals. I was in Hoover, Alabama. I think I was there one more time this year, which will come to me. Birmingham. Oh, no, that's that was <laughs> Hoover. But so can you talk, how did you end up in Tuscaloosa and how, how did you like it? <laughs> oh, boy. I ended up loving it. But at the beginning, I had never been south of Virginia. Right. I studied abroad one of my years in college. I lived in, in Canterbury, England for a year. And living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for a year was more of a study abroad experience than living in the United Kingdom. How about that? I got, I, I got there because, as I said, I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't really afford unpaid internships. So, so by the time I was ready to graduate, I didn't have any journalism experience. I didn't have one of those summer jobs. I, I just I wasn't able to procure one in time. So I applied to so many papers across the country. This is when... Journalism was, was was right on the edge. You know, it was still the mid-sized paper in Iowa City, in, Detroit, you know, all these places. There were just hundreds of them across the country. So I applied to over 100, all, all rejections, all except rejections. for one, except for one, the Tuscaloosa News in Alabama, which said, we have a three-month job. You have to know how to drive and you have to have a car. And I said... No problem, which was a total lie. As a New Yorker, I did not know how to drive. I certainly didn't have a car. And so the last three months of my, you know, my my senior year of college, I had to, you know, cross my fingers and pray that I could learn how to drive, pass the driving exam, get a car and make it down to Alabama in time for three months. It wasn't even a full-time job. It turned into a full-time job, but it was a real, I'm taking a, I'm taking quite a swing here for something that might not work out. Right. And it was amazing. The South, South has a lot of issues, but the South is also fascinating and historically fascinating, culturally fascinating, sports-wise. I'm not really a sports person, but I learned a lot about college football down there. What a place. What a place. I really grew to love it. Okay, that's so interesting. I know. I, I mean, just having done my events, I find it absolutely fascinating. Politically different from up here, like culturally different. But you're right. The SEC is really big. And it's like, what do they say? Roll Tide or War Eagle? Were you yeah. Auburn or R- Alabama? R- roll Tide. You yeah. were Tuscaloosa Roll Tide. is right Tuscaloosa. where the University of Alabama is. Yes. Yeah. So you were Roll Tide. Okay. We're going to shift gears, Gilbert, and we're going to talk about your job. So you took over at the Book Review 11 months ago, almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. I know that you, it's your intention to sort of, I mean, it. it is the only standalone Book Review left in the country. So what do you see as its role, what would you like to see changed? And and then I want, if you want to shift in sort of talking about book reviews in general in, in a newspaper and how important you think they are. 
Sure. So we we were the only standalone left. The, the Washington Post started up Book World as a Sunday section again. So okay. So that you're not. We the can't only say one. anymore. We're okay. you know standalone section. One I of do like the Washington. Left. I like Ron Charles and and Narkug. They're friends, so that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Their their editor now is John Williams, who used to be a longtime editor here at the Book Review, and, and the Post poached him. We were we were sad to see him go, and I actually I was in D.C. this past weekend. I finally saw it in print for the first time. Uh, but the the book review, the New York Times book review, still is is arguably the largest weekly book review section around. You know, last year we covered, and this doesn't this these are not all full reviews. Some of them were roundups, some of them were blurbs. But we covered more than two thousand titles last year over the course of a year, which is a good amount. There are a lot of books published every year. We can't cover nearly all of them, but you know, more than two thousand is 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 quite a lot. And you know, when I came in last August, my express job was to think about how to reach new readers, how to reach specifically new digital readers. So if I take a couple steps back, the the New York Times and many other journalistic outlets were really advertising based. They made all their money from advertising and then they made money from print subscriptions, right? So those were the two revenue streams. For a couple of years now, the New York Times has really gone all in on digital subscriptions as the thing that is going to drive our business going forward and hopefully is going to help us survive for a very, very, very long time. There are a ton of people who read the New York Times book review in print and will continue to do so. I know a lot of people, that's the first section they read. For some people, it's the only section they read, which makes me feel good. But those people, I feel like we have taken care of them for a very long time. And the plan is not to do or the goal is not to do anything that's going to make them too unhappy. But then you have all these digital readers, all these people that read about books on the Internet and maybe do not think of the New York Times Book Review as the place they would go to to read about books. Because in their mind, they're thinking of the Sunday print section, review after review after review of books that maybe they're not necessarily going to read. Books that are important, but books that they're not interested in. So I said when I came in, how can we grow our digital readership? Often new readers, new digital readers are a proxy for younger readers, more diverse readers. You know, we don't like keep demographic information in that way, but it's a proxy. We know that people that are coming in and reading us online are more likely to be people that are not reading the print paper. So how can we expand our coverage digitally in order to reach new readers, cover the types of books that maybe we're not covering as much or haven't historically covered as much in the print paper, write about books in different types of way? ways. Everything doesn't need to be a 600-word review, a 900-word review, a 1,200-word review, or other other formats, or there are other tones or types of writing in which we can sort of engage people who care about books. Because there are a lot of people who care about books. Not a, not a ton of those people care about the New York Times Book Review. So how can we bridge that gap? We're going to take a quick break from our conversation so we can thank one of our premier sponsors, Cartelina. If you haven't heard us talk about them before, Cartolina is a woman's apparel brand founded right here on Nantucket. Cartolina is Italian for postcard. The collections are inspired by travels to various destinations around the world, and their new fall collection, From Scotland with Love, is full of color, print, and textures from the beauty of Scotland's culture. All elegant and effortless, yet still adventurous, the designs are created for the art of the tangible and the intangible. 
You can shop Cartelina at cartelinanantucket.com or in person on the island at the Founders Store, Centerpoint. And look out for Cartelina's new location in Manhattan on Madison Avenue, opening this fall, 2023. Weren't you in a fashion show for Cartelina? I was in a fashion show for Cartelina. It was so much fun. I wore the most gorgeous white dress and wait until you hear this. So I wore the white dress and I should know the name of the style, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But that was the very same dress that Lisbeth is wearing in the Hotel Nantucket when Xavier Darling shows up. I mean, that's amazing. She's wearing her Cartelina dress. The style is just so fresh and summery and fun and you feel elegant and it sort of harkens back to like the 50s and the 60s. I mean, it's it's just perfect. The store, it. the store itself too is just such yeah. a breath of fresh air. Gorgeous. Perfect for any beachgoer anywhere. Thank you, Cardolina. Thank you, Cardolina. How does it work? How do you pick what is reviewed and how do you pick who reviews it? Sure. So it's a great privilege to work at the New York Times Book Review because we have, we have a staff. We have a staff of over 20 people devoted to the book review. So even other places that cover books, whether it's newspapers or fancy magazines, they, they don't have a staff like that. We have a, a group of editors that we call preview editors, seven or eight of them. And each of them has a loose portfolio of topics or types of books that they're interested in. We have a nonfiction editor explicitly because we cover a lot of nonfiction being the New York Times. We have a lot of editors who are focused on fiction. Some that were focused on more commercial fiction, Literary fiction, historical fiction, genre fiction, it's all, all over the place. So we get tons of emails from publicists and editors over the course of a year saying these books are coming out. We used to have to log all of those by hand. Now we've sort of digitized it in some way so we can sort of get a feed of really all the, all the books that are coming out over the course of a year. Then we have a couple of editors on the staff whose job it is to look at those books and say, I think... This editor would be good for this book. This editor would be good for this book. They're distributed that way. Then it's the previews editor job to read into the book. I'm doing quote fingers here. Read into the book. Now, if an editor had to read the full book of every book that they're previewing, that would be impossible. They would never live. They would, they would literally die. It just would not be possible. So they read 50, 75, 100 pages, and they say, we should review this book or we should not review this book. That's discussed with the top editors, me and my deputies. After we make that decision, the preview editor comes up with a list of reviewers that they think we should go to. If it's nonfiction, it's, you know, other nonfiction editors or academics who write on similar topics who would be well positioned to say whether or not this nonfiction book brings new information to the world, new scholarship, is it well written, all that stuff. If it's fiction, it's often someone who writes in a similar vein who writes in a similar genre, et cetera, et cetera. And we discuss that list and we say, well, this person, you know, probably wouldn't be, first of all, we have to discuss like conflicts. Do these people share an editor? Do these people share a publisher? Do they share an agent? Do we know of any reason why ethically they would not be a good person to review that, right? So we try to weed that out beforehand. Eventually when we go to a writer, we also ask them these questions, right? Because we want to make sure that there's no sort of obvious or top-level conflicts. And then we say, who would be good on this? And it's a discussion. And we go down the list and people say no. Sometimes the first person says yes. Sometimes the fourth person says yes. So it's a real, it's a real process that takes a lot of time. We're looking months out. You know, right now it's June when we're taping this. And we are 
probably out in mid-July and August talking about who should, even into the fall, big mm. fall books, who should be reviewing this, let's get someone a galley, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then how do you decide what goes on the cover? Good question. Let me take one more, uh, let me add one more beat to that answer I just gave you, which is, so there are full reviews and then we have columnists and columnists are often in genre spaces. So we have a horror columnist, we have a romance columnist, we have a historical fiction columnist, crime, thrillers, et cetera, because there's so many books in those spaces. And we know that people that love those genres really want to read deep into those genres. It's often true that if you are a thriller person or a romance person, it's possibly like the bulk of your reading. That's really what you want to read. So we want someone, these are all freelance writers primarily, whose job it is to really filter that stuff and tell us what is, you know, what's, what's the cream that's rising to the top. As far as the cover goes, that is, it's a discussion. It's a discussion amongst the preview editors and the top editors. What is the best written piece? What is the piece? What is the book that we feel is going to be you know, most notable this week or this month or one of the books. Those are those are often two of the factors that go into it. Our critics, our staff critics, before last August had never written for the book review before, uh, the print book review. They published only in the Daily New York Times. Gotcha. And this was because long ago there was a Sunday editor and there were daily editors and and you know, way back in the day, those those were on two parallel tracks. That's very out of date. We've gotten our critics like Dwight Gardner, Alexandra Jacobs, Jen Zelai into the print book review. And often they are reviewing some of the biggest books. And so we also want to make sure that they go on the cover a decent amount because they are our in-house voices on books. So I have this, the, the question I want to ask is, has a writer ever reached out after a bad review? But I want to, I want, I have a story and I'm not sure how much I want to disclose here. I read a book. Give us the tea. I read a book that I loved. I don't know what year it came out. Let's call it 2016. It was Charles Box, Alice and Oliver. I loved this book. It got, there was another writer, and I won't say who it was. You can look it up if you need to know. And she reviewed it for the Times. And the review, I strongly, strongly disagreed with it. I think, you know, she wrote it in earnest, in very good faith. But it was... She panned it, essentially, or gave it a less than stellar review. And I was so devastated. And one of the reasons I was devastated is because Charles Box readers are, wouldn't, it wouldn't, if it had been my book, it wouldn't have been a big deal. My readers are going to go out and read it regardless. But Charles Box readers, because he's a literary fiction, not, you know, he writes literary fiction. The New York Times readers are his readers. And so I think it was fairly devastating for his sales. Do you ever have anybody reach out to you after a situation like that? Not to my knowledge. I think most authors, if we're talking about authors, not to my knowledge, because I think most authors know that even even when they're pissed or devastated or sad or crying or it, it's just there's there's nothing to be gained from reaching out to us and right. saying why why did you do this to me? Right now, that's an author, agents, <laughs> editors, publicists. We hear from them all the time, all the time, and that's their job. And and I totally understand it, but authors know, which I think is is wise for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean the the interesting thing is not infrequently we the editors on the book review will read a book and they will love it or they'll think it's bad. Well, sometimes you have to assign a book because it's so big, or the author their last book was huge. We'll assign it, and the reviewer will will have a completely different opinion. 
many of our editors have assigned a book that they love. The reviewer comes in and they do not like it. And there's nothing to be done. There's nothing to be done. We cannot undermine, undercut our critic, or even if it's a freelance critic and say, well, actually, I disagree. Can you change your opinion? You just can't do that, right? So right. It's, it's always a weird thing to see a book reviewed well when you know or you believe that it's not that great. But there's a process that we really try to hold to. And once you start to mess with the process, then it's not a process. Then it, it really is the whims of the editors. You know, it's, it, we wouldn't want to do that. There's something so personal about when you love a book and someone doesn't. Ellen and I never fight, but the only time we bicker is if I'm like, you have to read this book and then she reads it and she's like, oh, I hated it. I was like, what? <laughs> this is like my favorite book of the year. So does that happen in the office? And does that like, is... Oh, a- absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's, and, and the staff here, you know, I've worked at a lot of places. Maybe people are listening to this will think I'm blowing smoke, but the staff here is, is amazing at disagreeing while not being jerks about it. For mm-hmm. example, this week, we will have our second meeting of the year to discuss potential best books of the year. We're already talking about potential top 10 books of the year. And the way that that works, this is related, but the way that that works is in the summer, we start to meet monthly to discuss books that came out in the first half of the year that we think may have potential. And then once the fall comes, we start meeting weekly. And those are debates, discussions. And the closer it gets to the end of the year, they, they turn a little more heated. But the staff is really amazing at disagreeing with each other, sometimes vehemently without ever like, with, without it ever feeling personal. And, and the thing, the reason I think that's true is because everyone on here is a bibliophile. Everyone on here is a book obsessive. Everyone here cares about books. So we know that what we're trying to do even if we disagree on stuff, is like get what we believe to be great books in front of people. So a lot of arguments, a lot of debates, a lot of discussions. Sometimes it gets uh, heated, but never in a terrible way. Wow. Wow. I'd love to be in that room where it happens. Oh my gosh, me too. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should, it, it should be subscriber only event. There should, tickets, it you know? yes. should be. You'd yeah, make there's a new millions. revenue stream. Yes. I want to go back and talk about, you and I share a favorite author. You already brought him up, Stephen King. I also mm-hmm. read it when I was in fifth grade. I went to a Lutheran grade school. The teacher picked it up and said, you cannot be reading this right now. Oh, no. My mother was like, well, it's a thousand page book. Shouldn't we be applauding? Whatever. I want to talk about Stephen King. I loved your article about him, but my I'm going to ask something specific. What do you think it is about Stephen King that you and I love so much? And then I have one other question after that about him. What I love about Stephen King is, A, I like scary stuff, right? So that's at the base level. That's what sort of hooked me when I was young. Now, the older that Stephen King has gotten and the farther into his career that he's gotten, he's actually moved pretty significantly away from horror as his main mode of writing. He writes a lot of crime books now. But the straight genre stuff is the thing that hooked me. A haunted hotel, a town full of vampires. As a kid, I was like, this is... I need this. I need more of this. So I always love that. Number two, for me, again, growing up in New York, it was like Maine. That's interesting. I've never been there. Like I live in a giant city in an apartment building, small towns, houses, neighbor, you know, all, all the stuff that goes into small town living that he sketches so well mm-hmm. really appealed to me. And I think third, many people agree on this. He just, he is great at character, right? He's great at, at putting you in the mind of a character, internal monologue, sketching over the... You only care about what happens to people because of the way that he makes you care about them as characters. And so to me, it's always been those three things. There are a lot of other reasons that he's important. I think he's actually a 
pretty huge and important author, American author, certainly in the last quarter of the, the 20th century. But those are my reasons. Okay. I what love are yours? That. Same things. Character. I mean, I was from a small town, so I think that I resonated with all of that. I love his coming of ages. And I think you just have, you have something from, especially it, when they're kids to adults and you watch someone's whole life. Those are some of my favorite types of novels is when you can follow someone and, and really get into their heads throughout that, that whole process. But um, back to character, if you could go to dinner with three of his characters, who would you go with? <laughs> I mean, look, Pennywise is hilarious. He would, he would rip my throat out at the end of the dinner, but what a funny guy. I just want to hang out with that clown. <laughs> what a clown. <laughs> totally be at my dinner too. And we must be sick because... <laughs> uh, he, he sounds great. There is... I, I actually... So King has written like a bunch of writers, obviously. Like the, he's... The number of writer characters, author characters, novelists that he's written throughout his career. I, I think his... I think his Legion. Unfortunately, I think early Jack Torrance, like before he, he turned into a real you know, alcoholic murder. I think he would have been a fun guy. I would have loved to have hung out with Jack Torrance at a bar. So that's number two. I'm just, this is off the dome. These are terrible answers. I'm sorry. No, they're not. And then number three would be, one of my favorite later books is, and it's a book we actually named as one of our top 10 books of the year, is 112263, which, you know, Jake Epping, I mm-hmm. believe is the, is the character in that book. School teacher in Maine, could be boring, but I think given everything he saw, I'd love to hear about the Kennedy assassination. I went through a phase, as many kids do, oddly enough, where I was obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. I made my grandfather take me to see the movie JFK at the age of 10, like three times. It was really ridiculous. He, not, he should not have taken me once. We totally have that in common, too. I have every book on the Kennedy assassination. So when Stephen King's 112263 came out, I was like, this novel was made for me. <laughs> It's it it really hit the sweet spot. Well, so those those playing. are my completely. I would maybe change my answer tomorrow, but that, that's my answer today. You're going to be lying in bed tonight, going, "I should have said something." Why else. did I pick the clown? I know. <laughs> and now a short break to thank our sponsor, Triple Eight Distillery. If you've read my novels, you know I sometimes use the first-person collective voice of Nantucket, sort of like a Greek chorus, but more gossipy and positive. I might say something like, on Sunday afternoons, we see the local author and her entourage heading to Cisco Brewers to catch the band. Let's not count their rosés. Because yes, dear reader, we sometimes have several. The brewery's location on Bartlett Farm Road is a destination for us all, with truly something for everyone. Food trucks, a raw bar, dog treats, and bars for every taste. From Cisco Brewers beers, to Triple Eight Distillery Spirits, to Nantucket Vineyard Wines. We Islanders are a social bunch, and libations from our favorite local brewery are a quick ticket from Who Are These People? to My New Best Friends. And if you're not on the island, find their fun beer gardens in New Bedford, Boston Seaport District, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and more. Or ask for their tasty beverages wherever you go. They will make your first-person plural party that much more fun. I mean, the brewery is the happiest place on earth here on Nantucket, is it not? I absolutely love it. In fact, I was thinking about maybe going this weekend. I haven't been in in a few weeks. You love going on Sundays. Yes, I do. I love going post-beach, like if I'm out by the beach and then for like a last minute or like a cocktail hour right after. Yeah, it's a must stop. If you're on Nantucket, even for just one day, 
I think it's like the one or two must-sees. You have you have to go. 100%. It, it, I mean, it is. It's truly the happiest place on Nantucket. They have the best bands. I, I saw a band this summer. I literally, I, I put it in my novel. I will never get over it. It was like a 90s rap band and the lead singer was a woman my age. It was so fantastic. I had the greatest time. Well, if you'd rather live in an Ellen Hildebrand novel, go to Cisco Brewery. Do it. Thank you. Okay, but I want to ask about book talk. So you obviously, I mean, we could also talk about the the bestseller list. So the New York Times is the paper of record and their bestseller list is, in my opinion, the only one I care about. And no one knows the algorithm. I'm sure even you don't know their algorithm, but you have obviously known that a lot of the people at the top of the New York Times book review, a couple of people in particular, are people on tip from influenced by TikTok. Sure, so yeah. does the New York Times have sort of a thoughts or response to book TikTok? I don't think we have an official response, <laughs> but I, 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 I could talk through. So you are correct. The New York Times bestseller list. I feel good about this. I'm actually, I feel great about this, that I have nothing to do with it, right? So it yeah. runs in the print New York Times, but we have a team and we've long had a team Three, three people whose job it is to do the work, right? They have their own little algorithm, secret sauce. A lot of people privately complain about it all the time. Some authors publicly complain about it, as someone did a couple months ago. But, you know, we feel that it's their combination of like, you know, big, big stores and small stores that we're really getting like an accurate sense of what people are reading across the country. There are several bestseller lists and, and you know, people sort of put more weight on some than others. USA Today used to have one that people liked. Unfortunately, they stopped that at the end of last year. I get the bestseller list the same day that everyone else in publishing gets the bestseller Which list. It's a Wednesday, Wednesday now when we're o'clock. recording. Yep. And I will, I, I see it slightly before that okay, just because yeah. we closed the issue. Yeah. But I see it on Wednesday. And so I, I, I boy, it brings me such delight every week to say, yeah, I have nothing to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Random agent, I'm sorry. As far as as book talk goes, you know, a lot of books on on book talk are, some of them are books that we have written about and reviewed, and and many of them are not because they're in various genres, they're part of series that, that maybe we haven't written about in any way. I can't say that a lot of the books on book talks are books that I read, but I think book talk is good. Yeah. I think it's good for the publishing industry. Yeah. And as the editor of the New York Times Book Review, it's not my job to care about the publishing industry, right? A lot I talk to people all the time who say, "Oh, you know, this you don't you don't sell as many copies as you used to." And I my response either in my brain or ex, or to them is like, "That sounds like a you problem. That's not it's not our job to care about sales. It's our job to sort of tell our readers what we think is good, worth reading, worth engaging with. But I think it's good for publishing. And I think books are, you know, one of the essential parts of like civilization. Books are important. And if there's this this relatively new thing, Book Talk has been around for a while now, that is bringing, you know, more readers and getting new readers excited about things. That's only a good thing. You know, I'm sure there are many publishers who for years are trying to figure out how to game Book Talk. I think it's almost impossible, like anything on social media. It's, it's, completely out of our control. Like you can try to get in there. You can try to put your books in front of influencers and, and et cetera. And it, it needs to be organic, right? Yeah. That's the amazing thing about book talk is that's largely organic. There are people on there who, you know, get early copies and make, you know, little videos and stuff and try to try to do that. Some of them succeed. Some of them don't. I think book talk's good. I think it, 
It reaches an entire population of people who have always been excited about books, who are looking for community and who want to be enthusiastic about it. So, you know, yeah, I say more power I absolutely to agree. Them. I mean, my daughter is, you know, plugged into Book Talk and the, and the, she's 17 and they get so, and the, her friends get so excited about reading and about all reading the same thing. And that is all thanks to Book Talk. Yeah, so. it's a way it's a way for a lot of people, particularly younger people, though, though not all younger people, to find out about books, to engage with other people, to create a community of, of people who care about the same books and, and ju- just to express enthusiasm. Right. We live in this time when being online, being digital, not being in person is is sort of like the, the a primary way in which people engage. And so, you know, you're digitally bringing people together over books. I, I think it's a good thing. I agree. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about my second favorite topic, which is television. I believe it to be the gold. I believe it to be the golden age of television, Gilbert. And you were the the television editor for the New York Times. What what was that like? That must have been the greatest job ever. I'm trying to think. Did you? you there was still there was streaming, right? You were covering streaming, etc. Mm-hmm. And what was that job like? What are your favorite shows? How much do you love TV? Because I, in 2023, absolutely love television. It was a good job. I think I have the greatest job ever right now, actually. I thought being no, TV I was editor say, I was, was, like, as an was author. a great job. <laughs> I thought being editor of the culture section, in which I'm in char- I was in charge of TV, movies, theater, art, opera, classical music. I thought that was the best job. Being the editor of the New York Times Book Review was the best job. But at the time, TV editor. I'd come from Vulture, yeah. Vulture.com, yeah. where I had run the site for uh, a year and change. And when I came over, it was just about the time when the, the New York Times really understood that TV, particularly streaming TV, was going to be a thing and we needed to put more resources into to covering TV. I came over when Mad Men was still on the air. Okay. Oh, I, we fantastic. covered the end of Mad Men, which yeah. remains one of my favorite shows of all time. Me too. Love it. And as hard it is to keep up with all of these books, TV felt even more impossible in its own way because every year there's increasingly more shows. And it's not a one-time thing. It's like, oh, so I need to watch 10 episodes of 30 shows. Like this is just not, it's not going to happen. One of the things that is true about being a TV editor, maybe about being a book editor, is that you never watch as much TV as you want to deeply because you have to sample a lot of little things to figure out whether you're going to cover it. Are we going to do a feature? Are we going to recap the show? Who are we going to interview? So you're doing a lot of sampling. And 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 it gets you tired of it after a while. I, it's just exhausting. It was exhausting as TV editor to just at work, constantly be watching TV. That was always a weird thing when someone would walk by my desk and I had a TV at my desk and I'm watching an episode of a show that doesn't come out for three weeks to say, should we cover this? Should it be an arts and leisure feature? Blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot. It's a lot. But it was amazing. We were right when Mad Men was ending and when Netflix was starting. Yeah. We covered the early years of House of Cards, which is fraught now because of its lead actor. But at the time, it was Netflix's first big swing. We were like, how are we going to recap this? All the episodes drop at once. Are we going to drop 12 episode recaps at once? It It was chaos. It was absolute chaos. But it was also exciting because... At the time, TV was the thing. It was just like the, this entire industry is changing. You know, you had Netflix and Amazon, Hulu. Now you have all these streaming services. It's led, unfortunately, to this moment that we're in, in which 
you know, the WGA is on strike. And part of the reason that they are on strike is because of streaming royalties, because all of the effects that the streaming revolution, which really started right at when I came over as TV editor, what, what that revolution has wrought. So, so it's an odd time to think back to how it all started. But at the beginning, it was, it was very heady and overwhelming and exhausting. Yes. What are your favorite shows? Oh, well, I was definitely a Mad Men fanatic. And then, well, I mean, I just finished Succession. I watch it all. I watch it all. But like the, I don't watch anything. So you guys probably maybe like more like scary stuff. So I don't watch anything scary. But all of the things that like Succession and I watched, uh, right now I'm watching Love and Death on HBO. Mm -hmm. I watched Euphoria. I watched, what else Does, you, does Euphoria make you scared for your children? Terrified. Absolutely yeah. terrified. And yet I can't <laughs> look away. It, I'd rather know than not know. I mean, my daughter was the one who says, oh, you have to watch the show. She's probably 14 or 15. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like... I hope you're not watching it together. No. That seems a little oh, no. awkward. No, no. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, what, what are you watching? I hate to admit, God, this is terrible. I've mostly stopped watching TV. Have you? Because uh, I feel like I need to be reading all the time. Yeah, it's, I bet. It's, 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 I did watch Succession. That was the one show that I, I took all the way through, like every other cliche person in the media... But I, it's it's too much to keep up with. I feel like at night I should be trying to read ahead before I invariably pass out because I haven't figured out the way to read at night without falling asleep. How, what position? What chair should I be standing? It's it's just like I always get sleepy after nine p.m. But I I I would feel guilty now. Like genuinely, you should be reading Gilbert. Right. You should not be watching TV. What are you doing? It's a real complex I have. Yeah, I, I have feel... to say, as a novelist, that I find watching really good television to be work because they're so well written. And a shout out to all the WGA writers. They are so well written. Like, and then also it's books that I love, like Daisy Jones and the Six. I watched that, and I watched Tiny Beautiful Things, which is a Cheryl Strayed column. I loved. I mean, the the a lot of the books that I love are being you know have started to be made. Big Little Lies was so fantastic, and I have horrible um, taste in television. If there's not a murder in the first five seconds, and I don't have to figure that out, then I'm out, and I'm also. But we reading. loved Mayor of Easttown. We did, but there was a murder. There was a murder. Yeah. yeah, that was prestige murder, though. <laughs> prestige murder. Yeah. Okay, so murder. what are you reading right now? Well, I'm definitely not going to talk about what I'm reading ahead because I never want to do that. And I don't think I ever will because I don't want people to think, well, he said he was reading it. Why aren't you reviewing that book? <laughs> but I am, going on, I am going on vacation next week and I want to catch up on some stuff. I've never read Louise Penny, so I'm actually bringing her, oh, me either. her first book, a, yeah. uh, her first book with me. She's incredible. She's been to the Nantucket Book Festival twice now, and she is oh, really? just as dynamic as all of her books and her characters. I think you will really fall in love with all of them. I know a lot of people that, who love her books, so definitely bringing that one. I just finished reading part of the Martin Luther King, the big Martin Luther King biography, because I, I interviewed that author um, on the podcast. I read Eleanor Kenton's Burnham Wood, another guest on the Book Review podcast. And then some older books. I'm, you know, I've never read Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane. So oh, I may nice. bring that one with me. There's always when I go on vacation or I think other people in the book review go on vacation, there's this push and pull. It's like, I could read, I have a galley for this amazing book that comes out in the fall by a Pulitzer Prize winner and I need to read it. Or I could genuinely be on vacation and read something not for work. That's part of the... It was true in culture, just like the thing you love is also the thing that you do for work and also the thing that sometimes you use to pass your time on vacation. So are you doing 
are you genuinely away and reading things that have nothing to do for work or are you reading ahead for work? It's 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 funny. I just brought up such a problem to have. <laughs> I'm not complaining about it. I'm I just, just brought that up the other decisions. day of like your passion. You you end up having a job that you would have dreamed of. And then it's like, oh, I have to read this book. I have to get this done by this time. So it turns exactly what you were just saying. So, oh, I have the new Stephen King galley. It doesn't come out to <laughs> September. Should I bring it with me? Or, or you that know, should I bring, that should I bring this? This Dickens book I've always wanted to read. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not bringing a Dickens book. No, don't bring a Dickens book. No. I mean, haven't we read them all? Or no? I haven't. Gilbert has a <laughs> hole in his education. I, just, I, just have not, I took a Dickens class in college, and I still have not read Bleak House. One day. Oh, okay. One day. Yeah, don't take it on this, but not vacation. on this vacation. It's a big one. I'll probably, I'll probably, you know, I read one of yours every summer. I'll probably, I'll yeah, probably take you can take the five star weekend. Yeah, we'll make, yeah, yeah. We'll make sure that you get it. Gilbert, thank you. And I just want to say personally, I am so, so grateful that you spent this time. You were my number one guest. I she wanted... said it immediately when we said we're doing it. I, like, I, 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 I wish I could have spent I wish I could have spent longer. I'm so sorry. I know. Well, this has been so fast literally so fascinating for me, certainly. I know for Tim. It's amazing. Good to see you both. All thank right. you. you too. Thanks, thank Gilbert. you. Hi, book lovers, Ellen Hildebrand and Tim Ehrenberg here again. Just a few closing notes before you leave. We want to thank our wonderful premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina and Nantucket Looms for their generous support in the making of this show. And we also want to thank our team behind the scenes, beginning with N Magazine. We want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our technical director, Kit Noble, and our editor, Brian Murphy. We hope you'll keep tuning in for more book talks featuring a stellar lineup of special guests all season long. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time and happy Happy reading. reading.